0: Hello, you are listening to the Utah Law Podcast, a program that explores and explains Utah law, paying particular attention to the unique aspects of our law, but also informing the listener of basic yet important parts of law in the Beehive State. This is the second and final episode of a two-part mini-series looking at the law of hearsay in Utah, Episode six covers the definition of hearsay and some of the key concepts involved in determining whether a statement is, in fact, hearsay. This episode looks at the key exceptions to the hearsay rule, meaning instances in which an out-of-court statement, which is offered for the truth of the matter asserted, will nevertheless be admissible. Now, if you find this show to be informative or helpful, please subscribe, give a favorable review, And share with a friend or on social media. If you have questions, you can reach me at utahlawpodcast at gmail.com. Okay, this episode will be fun, so stay tuned. The basic idea, the mythology, if you will, or the theology, depending on how you look at it, but the basic idea behind hearsay law is that out-of-court statements are not reliable or are generally not reliable. So we don't want them admitted into evidence. And this makes a lot of sense. If you think of hearsay as something like gossip or rumors, right? Think about all the times you heard from someone who supposedly heard from someone who supposedly heard from someone, some sort of salacious details, some sort of, you know, scandalous going ons about someone or some sort of falling out or knock down, drag out fight, but you never know where the story originated and, and you never are willing to go to the persons involved to get the truth of the matter. Like, so gossip and rumors, right? We, we all have a sense that not only are they not reliable, but it's somewhat unfair to admit that into evidence and to be making decisions that will affect someone's life and future on the basic of, of gossip and rumors. Also think of the game of telephone. What Someone might say as, you know, hello, I'm here to have dinner with you might somehow get translated over several iterations in the game of telephone as purple monkey dishwasher. Right. So not only is there this idea that, you know, rumor and gossip may not be reliable, but there's also also this idea that the person who's actually on the stand testifying as to about what they heard may simply have misheard it or may have misinterpreted it. So it makes a lot of sense from an evidentiary perspective and from a legal perspective to not allow people to make legal decisions, not allow juries to reach verdicts based upon hearsay. But, but is it true that every statement heard at second hand is unreliable? Is it true that every out of court statement is unreliable? Aren't some types of statements inherently reliable or at least much more likely to be reliable than not. So what if somebody goes to a doctor and says, my stomach hurts, would they be likely to lie to a doctor who's relying on the information that the patient gives them? What if somebody records something in a journal or a diary? Is that reliable or more likely? What what, what if someone makes a recording in an accounting ledger, right? That's an out of court statement, but are they likely to lie in their own accounting books, maybe we can rely on that. Well, as it turns out, the law does look at some types of hearsay statements and determines that they are reliable or at least reliable enough to allow them into evidence, not just to allow them to evidence for some circumstantial purpose, but for the truth of the matter asserted. So let's turn now to those instances. There are largely two rules of evidence that allow exceptions for hearsay. And the first one is rule 803. And this rule lists out 23 exceptions to the hearsay rule. Now I'm not going to go through all of them. I'm only gonna highlight some of the more relevant, some of the more pertinent ones, but rule 803 is the main exception to the hearsay rule. And what's interesting about rule 803 is the exceptions that are listed under 803 are going to apply regardless of whether the declarant is available to testify at trial. So the declarant, as you'll recall, is the person who is the speaker, uh, the person who says the hearsay statement, whereas the witness is the person who is testifying to what the declarant says. And then of course the statement is what the declarant actually says. So under Utah rule of evidence, 803, There are actually 23 enumerated exceptions to the hearsay rule. And I want to mention, well, I'll briefly mention most of them. There are a few all sort of combined because they, although they may be separately stated rules, they're the same theme. Uh, but then we'll, we'll highlight, the the most important ones. So the first exception to the hearsay rule is what's called the present sense impression rule. And a present sense impression is a statement made by the declarant that is describing or explaining an event or condition made while or immediately after the declarant perceived it. So let's say, for example, uh, Bill and Sue are driving and Charles is in the back seat. As they're driving just before the accident, Bill's driving, Sue's in the passenger seat, Charles is in the back seat. Sue says to Bill, you're driving over the center line and Charles is called to testify on on the stand. You can argue that that meets the present sense impression rule, because Charles's testimony is as to what Sue was describing or explaining an event or condition. And the statement was made while she was perceiving it. So as she's watching the car drive over the center line, she says, Bill, you're driving over the center line. So that's a present sense impression. The next exception is called the excited utterance. And this is probably the second biggest exception to the hearsay rule and excited utterance is quote, a statement relating to a startling event or condition made while the declarant was under the stress or excitement that it caused close quote. Now, the important thing about the excited utterance rule is that it doesn't have to be made immediately at the time of the startling event just so long as the declarant is still under the stress or excitement of the event. So if someone, let's say is in a car and they say, I'm really, really scared, or they say I'm really, really scared because something startling happened like this, the car skidded, right? Car skids, then the declarant says, oh, I'm scared. That's going to meet excited utterance. We're going to revisit excited utterance and look at some of the cases that interpret this rule. Uh, Another exception is called the then existing mental, emotional, or physical condition. And this is a statement of the declarant's then existing state of mind, such as mode of intent or plan, or emotional, sensory, or physical condition, but importantly, not including a statement of memory or belief. Then existing mental, emotional, or physical condition is often assumed by the excited utterance or present sense impression rules you actually tend not to get a lot of cases interpreting this but it but it is an exception to the hearsay rule okay here's a big one statement made for medical diagnosis or treatment so a statement that is one made for and is reasonably pertinent to medical diagnosis or treatment and two describes medical history, past or present symptoms or sensations, their inception, or their general cause. Now, what's not included in this record is, or in this exception, is to whom the statement is made, right? So this can be made, obviously, to a physician, but it could also be made to other healthcare providers. And it could actually be a statement that's made to just a, a, an average person. Hey, Joe, I really need to get to the hospital. My stomach's hurting. That would be admissible to say that their stomach's hurting. We'll revisit this one in a little bit as well. Another exception is a recorded recollection. So if someone makes a record on a matter that they once knew about, but can't recall enough to testify live in court, they can actually look back at the recorded recollection and then they can they can it can be admitted into evidence. So a good example of this is you know if someone has a journal and in the journal entry it says today I went to the store and at the store I saw Bill and on the stand they just can't recall whether they saw Bill at the store uh, their journal may be admissible. All right, probably the biggest exception to the hearsay rule at least in terms of actual day in day out litigation Uh, We call it business records, but it's actually called uh, in the rule records of a regularly conducted activity. So what this exception applies to is a record of an act, event, condition, opinion, or diagnosis. And there's some conditions. If the record was made at or near the time by someone with knowledge, the record is, and this is key, the record is kept in the course of a regularly conducted business activity activity or activity of the business organization occupation that's a regular practice and making the record was a regular practice of that activity. And then the record itself is shown to be genuine and authentic, right? So if you have a record that's made at or near the time by someone with knowledge and it's kept in the regular course of business, then these are generally going to be admissible. So for example, If a business always has a practice of issuing a receipt, a receipt's probably going to be admissible for the truth of the matter in the receipt that money was paid for a good delivered. Likewise, accounting ledgers. If if you have someone who can say, yes, we always enter our accounting like this, that's probably gonna be admissible under the hearsay rule. In personal injury litigation, the number one business record is going to be the medical records of the healthcare providers who treated the plaintiff. And you'll note that 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 exception specifically says a record of an act, opinion, or diagnosis. And keep in mind that a lot of what healthcare providers do is they make diagnoses and they form opinions. And because they keep records of what they do, that's generally going to be admissible under the exception of the hearsay rule. Now, there's a related rule to the business records rule, and that's the absence of records. So, you know, you can actually have the absence of records be used as evidence. So let's say, for example, that, you know, a doctor's testimony is that every time a patient comes in, I make a record of it. And let's say the patient says, I came in on January 5th. And the doctor says, I have no records from you from January 5th. You could actually introduce that absence of records as evidence that the patient did not come in for medical treatment that day. There are a few other somewhat related record or exceptions to the, to the hearsay rule related to records. So just as there's a, what we call a business records, there's an exception to the hearsay rule for public records. So if you have a public office that generates records, so long as the the record is made by a person who has knowledge and is made by someone who has a legal duty to report, then those records are generally going to be admitted. Now, One of the big exceptions to this exception, oftentimes police reports are inadmissible, even though they might fall under the definition of public records or business records. And they're going to be inadmissible in many circumstances because the legislature has said through statute, police reports shall not be admissible in these types of circumstances. Related to the public records exception are Uh, Vital statistics, so birth certificates, death certificates, marriage certificates, uh, very often uh, come in. Likewise, the absence of a public record can be an exception to the hearsay rule. Related to this are records of religious organizations concerning personal or family history, uh, certificates of marriage, baptism, or similar ceremonies, even if they're not issued by a public office, so a, a church or a nonprofit organization family records so a statement of fact about personal or family history contained in a family record such as a bible genealogy chart uh, interestingly engraving on a ring inscription on a portrait or engraving on an urn or burial marker those are exceptions to the hearsay rule and you and, and you think well that seems kind of odd but if you think about the the idea behind the exceptions to the hearsay rule We just don't think people are gonna lie in their own family Bible when they're recording who was married to whom, who was born when. We don't think people are gonna lie in their engravings on a ring or their inscriptions on a portrait or their engraving on an urn or a burial marker. And then some other exceptions to the hearsay rule that are, I think in some respects obvious, are records of documents that affect an interest in property. So deeds, statements and documents that affect an interest in property are generally going to be admissible. So we're not talking about records of documents themselves that affect an interest of property. But like if someone writes a letter that says something to the effect of, I bought 10 acres today, that may be admissible. Interestingly, statements in ancient documents, and I'll read the rule here because it's only a sentence long, a statement in a document that is at least 20 years old and whose authenticity is established. So if you can prove the authenticity of a 21-year-old journal, that's a journal entered in 2001, that's going to meet the exception to the hearsay rule for statements in an, in an ancient document. Here's an exception to the hearsay rule that comes up from time to time, but I think is important. Market reports and similar commercial publications. So market quotations, lists, directories, and other compilations that are generally relied upon by the public or persons, in a particular occupation. So old stock ticker reports, weather reports, even something like a uh, record of seismic movements I've seen, I've seen admitted movie times and listings I've seen admitted. Some other exceptions I think that are, you know, just generally interesting are statements contained in what's called learned treatises, periodicals, or pamphlets. So, you know, if someone has a medical textbook, you can actually admit into evidence statements in the medical textbooks for certain purposes. It doesn't come up too much, but uh, it can be done. Likewise, things like court records, judgments, previous convictions, those will generally fall into the exceptions to the hearsay rule. Again, the idea being that we're going to be pretty comfortable that a court judgment is reliable so that's a very kind of whoosh very quick overhead look at some of the exceptions to the hearsay rule but I, i think the important things to keep in mind here is rule 803 and the exceptions to the hearsay rule are all about what types of statements do we generally consider to be reliable and so think about excited utterances or present sense impressions these are statements that people sort of make without premeditation without thinking. They're not necessarily subject to retrospective interpretation. They're not necessarily subject to, uh, to spin or, or whitewashing. So if, if someone is at a parade and see someone falling from a rafter and says, Joe's falling from a rafter, you know, we, we just tend not to think that they're likely to lie about that. Likewise, if they go to a doctor and say, I got shot, I need help we think that's probably going to be true. We don't think people lie to the family Bible. We don't think people lie to the engravings on wedding rings. Now they might, but the law at least presumes that they wouldn't, or at least that it's so unlikely that the statement is going to be reliable enough to at least let the jury decide, let the fact finder decide. Attorneys when they make their arguments very often will say, okay, members of the jury, you've had admitted into evidence the statement of Joe while he was in the car. Think about whether you you want to give credibility or weight to that testimony. Maybe he's misremembering what his sense of mind was at the time. Maybe he was so startled by what was going on, he couldn't think straight. And maybe the jury looks at that and says, yeah, we don't believe it. What's interesting, though, is that the hearsay rule is not saying to the jury, you have to accept these for the truth of the matter. It's just saying that we are going to allow them to be offered into evidence. So the jury is always the judge of fact. They make the determination as to whether evidence that's offered is reliable and is ultimately true or not. They weigh the credibility, they weigh the persuasiveness of it. So having gone through rule 803 lightning quick, let's take a minute and look at some cases interpreting some of the major exceptions to the hearsay rule. Okay. The first case I want to look at is called Tripp versus Vaughn. And this is a 1987 case from the Utah court of appeals. And this case was all about foreclosure. So what happened was there was a mortgage loan, Uh, to the extent of about $1.2 million, and the borrower got behind on payment. This was a a land developer back in the 80s. And there was foreclosure and there was a lawsuit about how much more the debtor owed after the the property had been sold. So at trial, a man by the name of Howard Carroll, who was the executive vice president of the bank, testified that the original principal on the loan was $1.2 million dollars, but that it wasn't all extended by one bank. Several different banks had participated in this $1.2 million loan, and then Mr. Carroll testified that the total interest due on the loan was about $340,000. So this was in the 1980s. That was a lot of money then. It's hardly anything now, thanks inflation. Anyway, according to Mr. Carroll, he only knew how much money the other participating banks were owed Due to each lender submitting its computations of interest and in principal to him over the telephone, and then he compiled the amounts. So the district court admitted the testimony under the business records exception. So let's keep in mind what's going on here. Mr. Carroll is not saying there was a document that was created that said about 1.5 million was owed between principal and interest. What he's saying is All the other lenders called me on the phone and said, we're owed this much, and then he added it all up. And that was his basis for testifying at trial as to the total indebtedness. So does this testimony come in under the business records rule? And the answer is no, right? So the court of appeals said the rule requires records, documents, writings. So it does not apply to oral statements so because there's no writing mr carroll and the bank cannot just rely on the oral statements of the other lenders to determine how much interest was owed all right so here's the counterfactual or the hypothetical Uh, what if the banks had instead forwarded to mr carroll their account statements showing the accrued interest rather than calling him up they had simply well, mailed them to him or faxed them to him, would those records be admissible under the business records? Well, assuming you could prove that they were genuine and authentic, the answer is probably yes, they would be admissible under the business records rule. And and why would that be? Think about this for a second. Why do we accept the reliability of a bank statement as an exception to the hearsay rule? Well, banks if they have, let's say a deposit of hundred thousand dollars, they have to pay interest to the, to the depositor for that money. So they have to keep good records so they know how much interest to pay. So they're making internal decisions about how much their own capital they're going to pay as an interest payment to the depositor. They're also going to be making their own decisions about how much they can loan right? Because they use deposits to fund loans that they make, but they're going to make determinations about how much they can actually loan to borrowers based on how much money they actually have on deposits. So they would say, look, for our internal operations, we have a a very high incentive to make sure that the records are accurate. So even though it's a hearsay statement, it's likely to be accurate because we make decisions. We allocate capital. We, We lend millions of dollars. We pay people based on how much money there is. We make second, third, and fourth order decisions based upon what we perceive to be the accuracy of those bank statements. So if you think about it that way, it makes sense that if it's a regularly conducted business activity, that you would in fact say, okay, we're going to consider that to be somewhat reliable, or or at least reliable enough that we won't exclude it from, from evidence based on hearsay. So let's take another case. This one is called Klinger versus Kitely. And this is a 1985 or excuse me, a 1995 decision of the Utah courts of appeals. And this was involving a land dispute dating from the seventies. So what had happened was in 1972, uh, a man bought 40 acres of land in Duchesne, Utah, but the seller had made a mistake on the deed describing the extent of property being conveyed. And this mistake would turn out to have omitted about 20 acres or so from the deed. So they recognized this. And a few months later, a new survey was conducted. And as part of the survey, some unlicensed surveyors were working under the licensed surveyor and they went out and did their thing. So they performed a new survey. They presented their findings to the actual registered land surveyor. And he signed it. So about 15 years go by the buyer thinks that, okay, everything's good. I've got all the land I paid for and the buyer actually used and improved the land that he thought he had purchased. But after about 15 years, a new purchaser bought land from the original seller and he thought he had this 20 acres, right? So we have two buyers both thinking they've got 20 acres. So, Basically, what happened was the first buyer said, well, hey, surveyor, you told me I had these 20 acres, and he filed a lawsuit for, for negligence, claiming that he performed his survey incorrectly. So at issue in the trial was whether the diary of one of the surveyor's employees, one of these unlicensed surveyors, should have been admitted into evidence. So this guy who kept the diary had actually died before trial, but there was this diary that recorded you know, he, he recorded in his diary every day what he went out and what he did and some of his conclusions and opinions. And the diary contained records of who had hired the unlicensed surveyor, which was relevant to the question of whether the surveyor who had been sued for negligence would be liable, right? So this is a, okay, what, what I'm saying is your employees made a mistake and the guy who's being sued, the surveyor said they weren't my employees. And the diary said, I was working for the surveyor. Right. So that's going to be pretty relevant to the question of of who should be liable. Now, the district court excluded the diary. Should it have been excluded? And the answer is no. The court found that this diary should have come into evidence because there was testimony that the man who kept this diary, kept it regularly and recorded essentially everything he did and all the surveying team, all that they had done, so there was evidence of its trustworthiness. So this would meet the, the 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 regularly conducted business activity exception. And it did note I was hired by the defendant to go out and survey this land, and I did. So that's going to be relevant to the question of whether it's a business record. And ultimately the court decided it is admissible. So here's another case. This is from 1987. We have a lot of 80s cases. This one's called O'Brien versus Rush. And the issue here was how do we determine how much depreciation a motor vehicle had over a course of years. And the question was, is Kelly's blue book admissible for purposes of determining the value? And the answer is yes. And that's going to fall under that exception for, uh, statements that are market reports or similar commercial publications. So they would say, and and the court in fact did say, auto dealers, accountants, professionals of that nature rely on Kelly's blue book valuations when they're making their determinations as to how much something is worth. So therefore it meets that exception to the hearsay rule. Uh, after the rape, it was noted that the girl was crying and was in a highly nervous state when she then made these statements to the witnesses, a police officer, a child social worker and a nurse. And obviously these statements were made to these witnesses after the rape had happened several hours after the rape had happened in fact and the testimony surrounding or the or the facts surrounding the statements were not that she was wild or hysterical or crying or sobbing but that she was nervous that she was withdrawn that she was you know exhibiting all the symptoms that you would expect someone in her situation to exhibit and they all testified to these facts and the defendant objected and claimed that this is hearsay and then appealed after his conviction so the question is are these statements that the girl made to these three witnesses admissible and and the court the supreme court said yes they are they're admissible as an excited utterance and i think that this fact pattern really does illustrate well how the excited utterance rule works a lot of people think well excited utterance means something startling happens there's an explosion And the statements that question are being made immediately right at the time the startling event as it's called is going on and the court says yes those are excited utterance but that's not the only class of excited utterance the court says the question is if the trial court judge finds that the statements were made while the declarant was under the stress caused by the event then it's still going to be an excited utterance So even though they're made after the event, the question is, are, are the statements made while the person is still under the stress? And if it's done while they're under the stress, then it's admissible. And they looked at the facts of this case and they said, look, the girl wasn't hysterical. She wasn't sobbing. She wasn't wailing. She was making these statements in response to questions. So she was being asked something and then thinking about it and then responding, but this can still be an excited utterance if she's still under the stress of the event. And the surrounding testimony was that she was nervous. She was withdrawn. She was uh, almost kind of sulking. I I don't know if that's quite the right way, but that's kind of how I envision it. But she clearly wasn't acting the way you would expect a normal nine-year-old girl to act, especially if she had not experienced something so traumatic as a rape. So the fact that she's acting different, acting unusually, even though she's not, you know, waving her arms around flailing, that still meets the definition of the excited utterance and those statements will be admissible at trial under that exception to the hearsay rule. So the next case is one called state versus Barber, and this is a Utah appellate court case from 1987. And this is a 1980s case if ever there was one. So what had happened was Jean Barber was convicted of retail theft, which, is more than shoplifting because you're taking more than, there, there's a dollar limit. And If you go above a certain amount of thousand dollars, it becomes actually a second degree felony. And you can tell it was an 80s case because this involved ZCMI, the old ZCMI department store. So what had happened was a security guard observed Mr. Barber and his two sons, eight and 10, outside of the ZCMI. And essentially, they, he caught them with bags full of cabbage patch dolls. And those of you who were alive in the eighties might remember the cabbage patch dolls. They were a, a big thing, a big ticket item and everybody wanted to get them for Christmas or whatever. And so when the security guard catches Mr. Barber with the cabbage patch dolls, his youngest son, who was eight years old said, I didn't want to do this. My dad made me do this, which is kind of funny and tragic at the same time when you think about it. But that, statement of the eight-year-old was admitted into evidence at his father's trial. Should it have been admitted? And the answer is yes. This qualifies as an excited utterance because one, it was made while a startling event occurred, right? That's being caught by the security guard. That's a startling event. Two, the statement was made while the child was under the stress of it. Right? Right. As soon as he was confronted, he said, I didn't want to do this. My dad made me do this. And three, the statement related to the stress of the startling event, right? Because he's talking about how he didn't want to be involved in the, in the thing that the security guard had caught him for. So I think that's a very good example of a excited utterance. Okay. One more case from rule 803, and then we'll look at the next exception to the hearsay rule. This is a more recent case. This is from 2003 and it's an appellate court case. It's called state versus Sloan. And so what had happened was a child began seeing, uh, an LCSW, a licensed clinical social worker for depression and anxiety. And during the clinical interviews and, and the workup, the child reported to the LCSW that Mr. Sloan had been sexually abusing her. So Sloan's identified as the perpetrator. He's arrested and he's tried. Is the statement from the child, the LCSW going to be admissible, right? And so the the answer is yes, because the statement was made for purposes of diagnosis, and it thus falls under the exception under Rule 803 of statements made for medical treatment, essentially. All right, that was Rule 803. And Rule 803 is where most of the work of the hearsay exceptions are being done. But there are a few more exceptions and those are contained in Rule 804. But there's a a key caveat to Rule 804. And 804 contains exceptions that are only applicable if the declarant is unavailable as a witness, right? So all the exceptions we just went over in 803, it doesn't matter if the declarant is available to testify or not. 804 deals with rules or exceptions where the declarant cannot testify. And there are only four exceptions here, but before we get to those exceptions, we do have to talk a little bit about what does it mean for the witness to be available to testify. And there's essentially five ways that a witness can be unavailable to testify. So one is that they cannot be present or they cannot testify at the trial because of death or because of an infirmity such as physical or mental illness, right? So if someone's in the hospital on life support, we're not gonna say that they're available to testify. If they've been declared mentally ill or they are mentally ill, then they're not gonna be available to testify. But there are, there are, there are four other ways that a, a witness may be unavailable for purposes of these hearsay exceptions. If they're exempted from testifying because a privilege applies, and I'm gonna talk about that privilege in a little bit here. So like attorney-client privilege or penitent-priest privilege, healthcare provider privilege if it hasn't been waived. Uh, two, if they refuse to testify about a subject matter despite a court order to do so. Now, in that case, the, the witness may be in contempt of court, but they can't be forced to testify. So if they simply refuse, then we're going to declare them to be unavailable and these exceptions may be applicable to the hearsay rule. Three... If they say they simply don't remember the subject matter. So let's say we go back to our journal example. We have someone who had written in a journal about all the things they saw on January 5th. And on the stand, they say, I have no recall of what happened on January 5th. Then they're, you know, these exceptions may be, uh, may be applicable. And then the final is they haven't been able to be brought to trial for some reason. So you try to subpoena them and they just don't show up for trial in those circumstances. Then the, then, then the exceptions we're going to talk about here may apply. So keeping that in mind, these four exceptions only apply if the witness is unavailable. And the first exception is former testimony. So if, if the declarant had previously testified in a same or a different case while under oath, then that testimony is going to be admissible. So like, for example, if they had given a deposition, which is a, an interview sworn under oath in that same case, and they can't come to testify at trial, then that deposition will be admissible in most circumstances. Or if they had tried, if they had testified in another case, then that testimony will be admissible. All right. The former testimony exception is one that doesn't come up too much, and it's pretty straightforward. All right. The next exception to the hearsay rule is statement made under the belief of imminent death. And so the rule says in a civil or criminal case, a statement made by the declarant while believing the declarant's death to be imminent, if the judge finds the statement was made in good faith. So if someone thinks they're about to die and they say something and you can't get them at trial, whatever it is, they said under the belief of an imminent death is going to be admissible as an exception to the hearsay rule the biggest exception to the hearsay rule under 804 is statement against interest. So if a reasonable person in the declarance position made a statement that is contrary to their interest, whether proprietary, pecuniary, or criminal interest, then we're going to admit it into testimony. Now, there are some exceptions and marginal rules about this for criminal cases, but Essentially, if someone says something that a reasonable person just wouldn't say and it's against their own interest, we're going to presume that it's true if they're unavailable to testify at trial. And finally, statements of personal or family history, you know, statements about the declarant's birth, adoption, legitimacy, you know, whether their parents were married, ancestry, marriage, divorce, relationships. Um that exception doesn't come up too often. The big one is the statement against interest. And I want to give a case. This is kind of an interesting case from 2001 and it's called state versus Webster. And what had happened was a man was arrested for the crime of wrongful appropriation of motor vehicles. I didn't know that was a crime either until I looked it up, but essentially the facts were that he was a car dealer employee. And apparently he was driving vehicles off the lot. Now, why you wouldn't just call it theft or grand theft auto, I don't know. But he was moving these vehicles in a way that was criminal. And he gets arrested. And as it turns out, his wife had been driving one of these misappropriated vehicles as well. And his wife was arrested. And when she was arrested, she told the police officer, I didn't know it was stolen. quote." Close Now, this testimony was admitted into evidence against the husband at trial. And the wife was unavailable to testify at trial because of the spousal privilege, right? She had the right not to testify against her husband, but she had told the police officer when she was arrested, I didn't know that it was stolen. And so this was admitted at trial as evidence that the car in fact was stolen, which is the very thing that the The husband, Mr. Webster, was disputing. So should her statement, I didn't know this was stolen, have been admitted under this exception of the hearsay rule as a statement against interest? And the court said, no, it should not have been admitted. And the reason it should not have been admitted, it was not against her interest to say that she did not know that it was stolen. If it's true that she didn't know it was stolen, she would have a defense to the charge of receipt of stolen property or theft. So when she says, hey, I didn't know it was stolen, that's not against her interest. Now, remember, for it to be admissible, the statement has to be against her own interest. So if she had said, you're right, I knew it was stolen, right, then that would be against her interest. And then it would be admissible against her husband at at, at trial because she, as as his wife, doesn't you know, there's a spousal privilege and she can't be compelled. So she can simply say, I refuse to testify against my husband. That would make her unavailable. If she had said, yes, I knew it was stolen. Boom. That's a statement against interest. And it will be admissible under rule 804, despite the fact that it's hearsay. Okay. So a couple more notes on hearsay rule 803 and 804 are the exceptions to the hearsay rule, the main exceptions of the hearsay rule. There's also a rule called 806 that deals with attacking or supporting the declarant's credibility. So basically it says when a hearsay statement has been admitted into evidence, the declarant's credibility may be attacked and then supported that by any evidence that would be admissible for those purposes, if the declarant had testified as a witness. So essentially if we let hearsay testimony in, we're going to allow the parties a little more leeway to put evidence into the record about the declarance credibility, right? This is not the witness's credibility. This is the declarance credibility. And finally, there is an exception. It's called the residual exception. That's rule 807. This is sometimes called res gestae, And that's a Latin term whose meaning is irrelevant, but essentially, Rule 807, the residual exception says if there's not a specifically enumerated exception to the hearsay rule, you still may be able to allow the evidence in if it's hearsay. If the statement has equivalent circumstantial guarantees of trustworthiness, is offered as evidence of a material fact, is probative and is just generally reliable. And so rest geste is kind of interesting. So it's essentially saying there may be exceptions to the hearsay rule that we haven't specifically listed, but the facts and circumstances are such that we just think that the hearsay statement's going to be reliable, so we're going to admit it. And let me give you an example. Now, this is not an example from a real case, but this is just one that I can think of. So if you go back to 803, Uh, There's this exception for statements of, of, of personal and family history. And there's actually, the rule actually says, it's the family records exception. A statement of fact about personal or family history contained in a family record, such as a Bible, genealogy, chart, engraving on a ring, inscription on a portrait. So that engraving on a ring. So if someone engraves on the wedding ring, the date of the wedding, we're going to take that as evidence of the wedding. But let's say it's not an engraving on a ring, but it's an engraving on a pocket watch. And it says to my beloved son, congratulations on your graduation, 1936. Could that be admissible evidence that the son had graduated from wherever in 1936? Well, you know, a family history, my son, your graduation 1936 i think that that's family history but it's not an engraving on a ring and there's nothing that says in the rule engraving on a watch but then you could point to this rest just a exception it says equivalent right the rule says if there's an equivalent rule you'd say look your honor i think an engraving on a watch is pretty equivalent to an engraving on a ring and under rule 807 you'd have a pretty strong argument that that would, in fact, be admissible. So that's the rest geste exception. So having looked at the definition and the exceptions to the hearsay rule, you may have noticed that the exceptions to the hearsay rule are quite broad, and there are so many exceptions to a hearsay rule. It might be pretty reasonable to ask, well, Ben, is hearsay ever excluded? it looks like just about any type of hearsay statement I could imagine really is excluded. And I think you'd be forgiven for saying, look, the hearsay rule just doesn't exist because there are so many exceptions. They swallow up the rule, but don't think necessarily of hearsay as a rule of exclusion. Think of hearsay, the definition of hearsay and the exceptions to hearsay as a statement of when we will admit out of court statements. Right, where the law is going to not have a high degree of tolerance for gossip. The law is not going to have a high degree of tolerance for telephone tax, second, third, fourth order hearsay. But the law will take kind of a common sense view of hearsay and allow it to be admitted into into evidence. When we have reason to think or reason to believe that what statement we're considering has some degree of reliability before it. So we just don't think people lie to their doctor. We just don't think people lie in their books and records, uh, and how they do their business. We don't think people lie when they write in the family Bible or when they make an inscription on a portrait. We just don't think it's reasonable to think that those statements are as a categorical matter going to be unreliable. So think of hearsay, not so much as rules for keeping evidence out. Think of hearsay more as a filter a filter that applies to the most unreliable types of evidence. I once heard someone say hearsay is like a very broad net with very big gaps in it. I think that's a good way to look at the hearsay rule. Part of the fun of hearsay is because there are so many exceptions to it. You can find creative ways to get evidence in. You can also find creative ways to argue against the admissibility of evidence. Hearsay like many things in laws, indeterminate. There's a lot of judgment. There's a lot of discretion built into it. And the appellate courts very regularly say, we think that it was reasonable for the judge to rule in this particular way. They're not saying that that would have been the right way to rule or that you couldn't reach a different ruling that would also be reasonable. But we trust judges to exercise discretion. But we also take juries to take a common sense view to determine how much weight and credibility to give to hearsay statements. Well, I hope you've enjoyed learning about hearsay over these past two episodes. Hearsay is one of those fun parts of law. There's a so many different permutations, so many different hypotheticals that you can think of for how hearsay may or may not apply. And this is one of the staples of of a lawyer's education. It's one of those kind of milestones when you begin to get an understanding and a grasp of hearsay is really when your ability to think about law and legal reasoning comes into play. Plus, it's also fun for non-lawyers to you know, sort of tease through the puzzle of what the hearsay rules actually mean and think about hearsay. And also I think, I hope you've, when you've been learning about hearsay, apply some degree of skepticism to the types of information and statements you yourself hear and ask yourself, okay, why would I believe this statement I'm hearing in second hand versus why would I not believe this other statement that I've heard in second hand? Well, our next episode of the Utah Law Podcast is going to delve back into the controversial aspect of Utah law. In late August, 2022, a district court judge in Utah by the name of Keith Kelly issued an injunction prohibiting the state from enforcing its ban on the participation of transgender students in sports that do not match the sport of their native sex. So, prohibiting trans girls from participating in girls sports and trans boys from participating in boys sports. Obviously, this ruling attracted quite a bit of comment and controversy and the law itself attracted quite a bit of comment and controversy. We're going to take a look at that ruling and the reasons behind the ruling in our next episode of the Utah Law Podcast. As always, if you find this interesting, please like, please subscribe, please share with a friend and stay tuned.